It's Easter weekend, so where will you be? Hey, why not travel with us to Israel, where the story unfolded? In his devotional, Charlie Dyer connects us with Jesus at the Passover. But before that, we'll also take you to the garden tomb, where many say Jesus was buried and then rose again. Bible questions? Yeah, we'll answer those and bring you up to date on amazing Israel. Hear it all when you join us now for The Land and the Book. Welcome. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, who has just returned from yet another trip to Israel. And I'm John Gager. Maybe as you as you work through Easter, you're saying, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever really personally experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year you can, right, Charlie? That's right, John. Our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you in the lead-up to this year's Passover. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. So visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. If this is your first time with us, uh, the land of the book is comprised of four segments. This first one brings us up to date on stories that we've been following from the Middle East. Charlie, last week you talked briefly about the confluence of Easter, Passover, and Ramadan and the corresponding potential for violence. Sadly, several terrorist incidents have occurred. Help us understand what's really driving all the violence and what can be done to bring it to an end. Yeah, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, with support from Iran, are ultimately behind much of the violence. They're using the month of Ramadan to stir up religious fervor and incite violence. Tens of thousands of Muslims gather on the Temple Mount for Friday prayers throughout Ramadan. Meanwhile, a Jewish group called Back to the Temple Mount has been calling on Jews to sacrifice a Passover lamb on the Temple Mount. They've offered $3,100 to any Jew who succeeds. Hopefully that won't take place. Religious Muslims and Jews both focusing on the Temple Mount at the same time is an explosive combination. But getting back to what's motivating all this, Hamas controls the Gaza Strip and they're trying to take over the West Bank from the Palestinian Authority. Rather than launching rockets into Israel from Gaza, which obviously would bring about Israeli retaliation against them, Hamas is trying to incite violence within the West Bank and Jerusalem. They're trying to present themselves as the champions of the Palestinian cause while picturing the Palestinian Authority as a corrupt regime cooperating with Israel. Israel's trying to choke off all the violence before it grows out of hand. Hmm. They've locked down the city of Jenin and moved in to arrest known members of terrorist organizations. They've also approved funds to replace the security fence in parts of the West Bank with a more permanent concrete barrier. And they've beefed up security forces in Jerusalem and the West Bank. Part of the difficulty for Israel is that a number of the recent attacks were committed by individuals without obvious connections to known terrorist cells. Still, Israel's hoping that by arresting known terror suspects, beefing up security, and keeping Jewish extremists away from the Temple Mount, they'll be able to keep the violence from spiraling out of control until the end of Ramadan on May 2. And John, let's hope they succeed. Yeah, for sure. Well, Israel is faced with still another coalition crisis brought on by chametz, or non-kosher for Passover food. Charlie, how can something that seems, at least on the surface, so trivial bring a coalition to the brink of collapse? 
It really illustrates the inherent fragile nature of the current coalition government. Historically, during Passover, Israeli institutions and stores remove all food that's forbidden for use by Jewish people during this time, and that would be especially food with leaven. The problem is that this impacts hospitals, army bases, and other places that are used by non-religious Jews and by non-Jews. Israel's Supreme Court ruled that such bans on non-kosher food are illegal, and Israel's health minister, who's from the left-wing Meretz Party, sent instructions to hospitals telling them to uphold the court order and not to search bags for contraband food. In response, Edith Silman, a member of the coalition from Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's own Yamina Party, resigned from the coalition. Hmm. This wiped out the coalition's razor-thin majority in the Knesset. They need 61 votes to pass legislation, but they now have only 60. Silman called on other conservatives in the coalition to join with the opposition and to form a new coalition without holding new elections. The current government can potentially survive, but it will require them to find support from parties not currently in the coalition. This will limit the legislation that can get passed. Some suggested the other Arab parties as potential partners, but that was shot down when the leader of that group called on Arab Israelis serving in the security forces to resign because they were, quote, humiliating their own people. The conservative members of the coalition then said they wouldn't accept that group as a partner in any way. Meanwhile, other conservative members of the coalition are feuding with Defense Minister Gantz over his apparent refusal to follow through on agreements regarding the legalization of some West Bank settlements. The Hametz incident is merely the latest illustration of the inherently incompatible nature of this coalition. It might limp along for a while, but as Abraham Lincoln said, quoting Jesus, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And right now, this coalition is clearly divided. Charlie, when I listen to these discussions about the rather complex and nuanced form of government in Israel, it, it impresses me that that whole thing had to have been invented by a very large committee that was determined to listen to every voice and come up with a billion different rules and exceptions. Am I pretty far off on that? No, you're pretty much on target. It is a uh, system that is inherently unworkable for the long term, and yet it's survived for over 70 years in Israel. Mm. You're listening to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert. I'm John Geiger, kind of working us through a list of current event stories. Last week, you talked about the claim that an altar found on Mount Gerizim dates back to the time of Joshua. In passing, you briefly mentioned a curse tablet uncovered there. We're not talking about an iPad gone bad. What exactly is a curse tablet, and how significant is its discovery on Mount Gerizim? Well, a curse tablet is sort of a legal document or contract that warns the individual what will happen if he doesn't fulfill his obligations. Yet Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 contain a list of blessings and cursings imposed by God based on Israel's actions. So uh, this curse tablet might be loosely patterned after those passages. Uh, the folded lead tablet that was found is only about one inch square. Hmm. Now, according to the archaeologists who discovered it, they found inside the earliest Proto-Hebrew script, which contained the words cursed and Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God. And according to preliminary reports, the text reads, cursed, cursed, cursed. Cursed by the God Yahweh, you will die cursed. Cursed, you will die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. Well, since Mount Gerizim's the mountain on which the people stood to recite the curses of the covenant in Joshua's day, the connections between this particular text and that earlier historical event added significance to the announcement. The archaeologists dated the find to the late Bronze Age at roughly 1200 BC. Now, in terms of significance, 
I think we need to be cautious. If this is dated around 1200 BC, it would have been written about 200 years after Israel's conquest of the land in the time of the judges. It definitely could have been placed on Mount Gerizim because of the mountain's association with the curses of the law. And if it's authentic, which still needs to be fully established, it would show that Israelites were literate, that they did know Yahweh was the personal name of their God, and that they were aware of the significance of Mount Gerizim as the mountain of cursing. We now, John, just need to wait until all the details are made available to see if the find is genuine. Well, you mentioned the C word, cancer, and many respond with anxiety, even fear. But two studies out of the Wiseman Institute of Science offer hope for new treatment options. Describe the latest discoveries on the cancer front coming out of Amazing Israel. Well, the first discovery involves a way to safely administer an immunotherapy drug that has the potential to fight cancer, but that was considered too toxic for widespread use. The team created a new version of the medicine, adding a synthetic antibody to make it safe. In studies involving mice, the drug appeared to be safe and effective. It stimulates the body's immune system, which is seen as a viable way to fight many solid tumor cancers. When the drug was initially given in low concentrations, it wasn't effective. In high concentrations, it was effective, but produced toxic side effects. This new version makes the antibody apply itself very selectively. It stimulates the cells that give immunity, but doesn't impact other cells. Now, the drug still needs to go through clinical trials, but the scientists believe it could result in an arsenal of new drugs. Mm. Uh, The second discovery focuses on naturally occurring antibodies found in cancerous tumors. People with higher concentrations of these antibodies were more responsive to anti-cancer drugs. The researchers isolated these antibodies and showed that the immune system of cancer patients can produce them to fight against tumors. Now, their research paves the way to develop additional cancer immunotherapies that will stimulate cells to produce these natural anti-tumor antibodies. While the scientists focus their research on ovarian cancer, they believe it will apply to other types of cancer as well. New approaches to immunotherapy that will provide more ways to battle cancer. These medical innovations from Amazing Israel can't come soon enough. Wow, that's a great update. Thank you, Charlie. Very exciting. Appreciate your attention to these stories out of the Middle East. We have got a great program ahead for you today as we continue. Up next, a conversation with the the director of the Garden Tomb. We're going there. And then Charlie's devotional takes us to the Passover moment with Jesus. That's all ahead here on The Land and the Book. It is certainly one of the most popular places to visit in all of Israel, and for followers of Jesus, perhaps one of the most precious. I'm talking about the Garden Tomb. Up next on The Land and the Book, not a conversation about, but a conversation in the Garden Tomb. That's exactly where we're coming from today here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Before we take you any further into the Garden Tomb, though, let's pause for this thought on how you and I can share the love of Jesus with a Jewish friend. Not that long ago, I was having a conversation with a Jewish friend, and we steered the dialogue toward the person of Jesus, and bam, immediately we were shut down. Absolutely did not want to have any discussion at all about the person of Jesus. Why such a violent reaction? What should I have said? I kind of caved and, and you know, we, we went away. What was the right response? What should I have done, Greg Savick? I don't think you did anything wrong when somebody says they don't want to talk. There's really not more you can do. I like to throw out a couple things saying, 
is there anything about God that you want to talk about? Hmm. I like to throw about, I know you don't want to talk about it, but I'm just, I would love to get your opinion because you're Jewish and you probably know a lot more about the Old Testament than I do. So I try to appeal to their pride. And then sometimes I just say, I love talking about God and I love hearing about God. Maybe you could talk to me about your faith. So try to get them out there, even if they're not interested. Ask them, are you interested in anything about God? I mean, anything. Hmm. And a lot of times Jewish people do that. They just shut down the conversation. They don't want to, they just want to deal with it. And so we're going to just be respectful, polite, and continue that friendship. That's Greg Sabbath with Rock of Israel on the land and the book. One of the most beautiful spots in all of Israel has got to be the Garden Tomb. The lush beauty of all the green I'm looking at right now, uh, the way it's been tended, the flowers, and of course, the tomb itself, reminding us of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. It's quite a picture. So many listeners have been there. If you haven't, you're going to feel like you're there by the time this conversation is over. I'm talking with Stephen Bridge, and your role at the Garden Tomb is? I'm director of the Garden Tomb. So my job really comes down to leading the team here, which is a multinational team, a team also of the land. So we have Jewish believers and Arab believers in Jesus working together with the international team to present the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to everyone who comes. So walk the uh, the visitor through what they'd see here. As you're listening to this conversation, by the way, you will likely hear people singing in the background as groups come to worship and praise God for all that he's done through Jesus. You will also hear other sounds like maybe jackhammers and construction. And, and why is that, Stephen? So as soon as COVID hit and we realized it wasn't going to be open over in a month or two, and as soon as we realized that numbers were going to plummet, uh, we began to pray, Lord, how do we use this season? It's not a season we have chosen. And the thing that we set our hearts on was to prepare the garden for people's return, to plan for the time when, again, there'd be hundreds of thousands of people coming to the garden. And so we've set around altering uh, two particular places of huge importance. What you see at Skull Hill, the viewing platform, the seating area, and what you encounter as you approach the tomb. Both of those places, for those of you who've been, you will know, both of those places are marked by steps up and down, which make the whole journey quite challenging, particularly in wet weather. And so we want to get rid of all the steps and putting gradually sloping pathways through landscape gardens that take people on a journey to consider the crucifixion and a journey to consider the burial and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. You know, when we come here with a tour group uh, led by Dr. Charlie Dyer, we are always given ample time, not just to stroll the grounds, but encouraged to spend time together praying. And there's just something very, very special about being able to pray here. Uh, It's an emotional experience, not that I'm chasing after emotion. How do you account for that? If you do anything like approach uh, our Lord with an open heart, we're approaching the God who wants to meet with us. Uh, However much we imagine we might want to meet with him, his desire for us is phenomenally greater than that. And so we, our prayer in this place, we pray every morning before we open and we pray during the day, uh, Lord, would you visit people with your presence this day? Would you encounter people by your spirit? Would you, as you desire, change lives, heal broken lives, restore broken people and bring people into the presence of our living Savior? So that's our prayer. And I think you're going to see encounters. You're going to see lives changed. 
you know, we're in the middle of a conversation here with Stephen Bridge, who's the director of the Garden Tomb. For somebody who is either visually impaired or has never been here, exactly what size is this uh, whole thing, this thing we call the Garden Tomb? And uh, how can they picture it just a bit better as they're listening to this conversation? Okay, so uh, if you're not visually impaired, of course, you can go to our website and do a virtual tour, or you can come and see yourself. If uh, you have a visual impairment, then I will do my best to explain it. I should have sitting with me at this moment our guide who is visually impaired, who takes groups around, and he could do a better job than me. But we've tried to create a route within a garden that's only about one and a half acres. And it's just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And it's surrounded by the noise and bustle of the old city, particularly East Jerusalem, with its bus stations and its sirens and its uh, warnings and all the rest going on. You walk into an oasis of peace. You walk into a place, as I've said, bathed in prayer. You walk into a place where every guide who meets you is a believer and whose uh, vision and heart is to explain the good news of Jesus in your own language. So we do tours in multiple languages. And on the tour, as you walk around, you're sensing or seeing and sensing the beauty of the garden that speaks of our Creator, the stark reality of Skull Hill that was a stone quarry just outside the city walls. And you're looking at a place where possibly the most gruesome acts imagined by man would take place, where living people would be nailed to wooden posts and left to die. And that's what we believe Jesus did for us. And it really is a place of contrast from beauty to the stark reality of suffering, to the price Jesus paid, to the tomb, which is now empty. And that's speaking of the power of the resurrection. We want to take everyone on that journey. And you do it well. I'll never forget watching my grandfather's slides. He had about 35,000 of those slides to share with us. And of course, among them uh, were images from the garden tomb. Uh, we're looking at Skull Hill on this little screen, wobbling in our living room. And he, he commented that it was right next to a bus station. And I thought, no, that can't be. That absolutely can't be. The bus station right near where Jesus was crucified? But, you know, you think about it, it kind of makes sense in a way. Your comment. It absolutely makes sense. We see from the Bible narrative, again, I like to read between the lines and what you see between the lines of the simple gospel uh, explanation is that there were crowds of people, many of them uh, opposing Jesus and rejoicing in his suffering, others uh, lamenting and mourning. But the picture is of crowds of people, some stopping, but others passing by noise, bustle. The uh, area that we're looking at at Skull Hill, it's a bus station now. I sort of joke it was probably a camel park back then. It was probably full of traders. It's just outside the city walls. It's right on a Roman road. And people would have had the hustle and the bustle, at the first century version of a bus station. So I think it speaks very eloquently of where Jesus chose to suffer and die. Well, you also said that you are really in the heart of, of noisy Jerusalem with East Jerusalem here. How, how is this place perceived by, by corporate residents and the people that live in the area? You know, do they see you as an oddity? Do they see you as a friend? How, how is this place perceived? That's a really interesting question. And my experience over the last um, seven years of being the director is that there is, the, there is a change taking place. We've specifically uh, targeted opening the garden for local people to come. We have evenings and uh, weekend where we invite the local Arab community to just come in and we do tours in Arabic. More and more we're seeing local Arabs come. Now in the area where we live, there are some Christian institutions. 
we've got a Dominican uh, church on one side and a German Catholic school on the other. But really, most of our neighbors are Muslims, a few Christian Arabs, but mainly Muslims. And we're seeing more and more that they're drawn by the beauty and they're drawn by the, the warmth and the welcome they get. So that's our Arab neighbors. In terms of, of Jewish neighbors, that more and more the Jewish municipality is becoming aware that they have this tourist site that draws hundreds of thousands of people who love Israel. And more and more we're getting on their radar and they're really keen to work with us to encourage Jewish people to visit the site. And we are seeing groups brought by Jewish guides regularly. Uh, week by week, normally from a secular background, but also from religious. And it's intriguing. They're, they're captured by the beauty, and who couldn't be? But the number of Jewish people who say to us, there's something about this place. They're spiritually aware, but they don't know what it is their spirit is sensing. And it's our privilege to talk about uh, the God who loves them and revealed himself. Now, we, we have to be very careful, and rightly so, to respect the Jewish religion. But if people ask us a question, we're going to give them an answer. Our conversation continues with Stephen Bridge here on The Land and the Book. He's the director of the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem from where this conversation comes today. You're excited about all that's going on here. We are. One of the things early on that we decided when COVID hit is we have to make use of this season. It's not a season we would choose, but we've got it. So in 2021, we concluded a significant amount of building works at the area called Skull Hill Viewing Platform. For those who have been before, you'll be used to going up some steps, and in the winter it can be a bit slippery. That's all gone. We've got a big open plaza with uninterrupted views of Skull Hill and presentation areas for groups and for individuals where people can stop and reflect upon the cost of our salvation. That was last year. This year, we're, we've started the whole rerouting of the garden to the tomb. Now, the tomb remains untouched. We would never do anything with the tomb. It is what it is. It's an empty tomb. That's the glory of the gospel. But the approach to it, we really wanted to make it both visually and practically as good as we could. We wanted people to be on a journey of pilgrimage to that empty tomb, and we wanted them to do it without steps. And so we're creating a pathway down to the tomb through landscape gardens that will bring you to that empty tomb, not out of breath, not worrying about trip hazards, but totally focused on the risen Christ who is not there. For he is risen. So for people who would like to learn more about the garden tomb, maybe take a virtual tour online, get ready for what they're going to see in person, where do they go uh, on the web? So if you go to gardentomb.com, uh, you will land on our homepage and you'll be able to click on a, on a video that takes you on a very brief virtual tour of the garden and explains the ministry. And there's other things on there that will really help you to appreciate what the ministry is. Because I'll say what I always say, we are not a tourist site. Tourists come here, but we are a place of pilgrimage, a place of worship, a place of prayer, a place of proclamation. That's our job. And we invite everyone to come and hear the good news. What's the hardest part about maintaining the garden tomb here in Jerusalem? Keeping the integrity of the place. We want to keep the garden beautiful, but it, it, it speaks. It has to speak. It is the backcloth for this incredible gospel. And so we try to create a garden that reflects the whole journey from, if you like, Gethsemane, where Jesus said, not my will but yours be done, through to the crucifixion. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Through to the desolation of Saturday, when his disciples were thinking, it's all over. It's gone. Nobody was expecting resurrection, except the Son and the Father and the Spirit. Through to the confusion of, of early Sunday morning, through to the rejoicing of Sunday evening. That's the journey we want to take people on, and to help the garden speak that narrative and not conflict with it. It's an awesome privilege, and that's our job.
So you come in here every day. Every morning you're here. Every afternoon you're here. You live here. How do you keep this from being a job in a pleasant workplace? And how do you hang on to the reality that this place, or very near this place, the Son of God, was crucified and risen from the dead? You're right. When you live in a place, it becomes a challenge and a challenge we must meet to maintain our personal walk with Jesus. If we're not excited in our personal faith, we can't pretend to be excited when people arrive. And so we have to maintain our walk with Jesus. That's the central challenge that I face as director and as the team I work with face. We must love Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We must give ourselves to prayer. Uh, The whole Habakkuk thing, even if the harvests fail, even if everything goes wrong, my eyes are on you. And so we, we endeavor to encourage each other to maintain that walk so that when people come in, they're meeting worshipers, believers, witnesses, not just people doing a job. What's your final thought for listeners who are hearing this conversation about the garden tomb and its message for us today, right now? There is no more important message in the world, whichever country you come from, uh, than the central message of God's profound love for us. We know that verse, God loved the world so much, but we see that he loved the world so much through his son whom he sent in his death, in his life and death and resurrection, in his uh, ruling and glory and his soon return. Um, This is the message of the garden. This is what we're passionate about. And we're looking forward to meeting people and telling them again that story. In 2019, we had over 100 nations visit the garden. Over 100 nations. We had to try and scrabble to think of a name of a nation that didn't come and we couldn't think of one. People want to know. And the gospel message of this place goes out to the nations. People come. I don't know why some of them come. They come to see a garden. They often leave with the risen Christ. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. That's Stephen Bridge, director of The Garden Tomb. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. There's more to come as Charlie Dyer returns with a look at your questions next on The Land and the Book. We think you're going to be glad that you stuck around on The Land and the Book. This third segment is just so enlightening as we work our way through a list of questions that have been emailed to us from listeners just like you, people who are reading their Bibles, digging in, studying, and then they say, hmm, what does that really mean? Well, you'll find out as you hang out with us. Right now, a question, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year, you know what? You can. Yeah, our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you in this lead-up to this year's Passover. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This book will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. So visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Bible scholar, frequent Israel traveler. I'm John Geiger, his curious uh, sidekick, and we're working our way through questions that have come to us via email. We'll start with Marcia's. She writes, I was once taught that the Bible is an Eastern book, and there are a lot of things in it that our Western culture cannot relate to or understand. 
One time I had a book and it did explain some of the Orientalisms, but I can't find it now. Do you have any book or comment regarding this, Charlie? I do, and it's it's not that in the West we're unable to understand the Bible, but rather some parts of the Bible require an understanding of a, a Semitic way of thinking or just to properly understand them. Now, some parts, especially the New Testament, are easier for someone from the West to understand because that pattern of thinking, reasoning, and writing is more similar to what we're used to. The Old Testament is where those in the West have more difficulty, yet even here, the problem's not as great as some imagine. The main difference, as I see it, is that those in the West tend to think in terms of logical order and progression. We think like uh, we have main points one, two, three, we have subpoints A, B, C. But the Semitic way of thinking, especially in poetic language, tends to develop ideas in terms of what's called parallelism. Two thoughts are compared or contrasted to make a point. Another stumbling block for some in the West is the extensive use of figures of speech. For example, Old Testament writers will often use a figure of speech called a merism, where they state two opposites intended to signify the whole, you know, from sunrise to sunset. Well, it means all day. You know, when I sit and when I rise, which means everything I do. Uh, there are many other examples of this way of thinking. And in terms of a book, let me suggest one. Uh, the author is Dr. Roy Zuck, Z-U-C-K, and the title is Basic Bible Interpretation. He has sections on bridging the cultural gap and bridging the literary gap and how to understand figures of speech, among other sections. If you want to know how to interpret the Bible, that book is a good investment. All right, thank you very much for that question, Marsha. I hope it was helpful. Here's one we get uh, regularly. I attend a Bible study class, and the teacher believes that the King James Version is the only true and accurate version. We compared 1 John 5, verses 7 through 8, and they weren't the same. The King James Version is longer and specifically mentions the Trinity, which isn't in the NASB. Could you offer a simple explanation about these various versions and any other version that you do recommend? Okay, I have to start with this reality. Uh, We don't have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. They were lost over time, though thankfully copies were made, and then copies were made of those copies. And unfortunately, when people copy something, they often make errors. But by comparing all the copies, we're able to reproduce the original text with an incredibly high degree of accuracy. Now, some scholars give prominence to the majority of manuscripts in Greek, uh, especially for the New Testament. Uh, The King James Version, the New King James Version are based in large measure on those manuscripts. Others give prominence to the earliest manuscripts. They assume that they had less time for errors to creep in, and still others try to arrange the manuscripts by geographical region, assuming that people in a specific area likely copied from the manuscripts they had in their region. But most scholars do try to use all available evidence to figure out what the original text said. Now, in terms of that 1 John 5, 7, and 8, which describes the Trinity, Here's what somebody needs to know. No early manuscript evidence supports the reading found in the King James Version. The scholars behind the New King James Version added a note to those verses stating that only four or five very late manuscripts contain those words in Greek. And the NIV text has a note identifying the part that they say can't be found in any Greek manuscripts before the 16th century. The point here is that all the manuscripts discovered in the past 400 years are united in not seeing those words as part of the original Word of God. That's just one of those areas I'd say is a mistake in the King James Version, which otherwise is a good translation. Now, this doesn't call into doubt the doctrine of the Trinity. It's clear from numerous passages that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all addressed as God. They all have the attributes of God. They're held equally as God. The fact that someone much later decided to add that to 1 John 5 doesn't take away from the reality of that truth. 
but the vast majority of manuscripts that have been discovered help us arrive with uh, really a high degree of accuracy at what was written. And it doesn't matter whether someone's using the King James or New King James or NIV, New American Standard, ESV, or any other translation. They're remarkably consistent. Hmm. And that gives me confidence in God's Word. But this is also a reminder why comparing multiple Bible translations is a good approach to studying the Bible. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at questions, yours, as you peruse the scriptures. Ryan says, I'm a new Christian and am wondering, where did the Canaanites of Abraham's time come from? How would Noah's descendants split into two or more bloodlines? Yeah, it's a great question. I think Moses provides the answer in Genesis chapter 10. Now, that's the chapter that describes the table of nations, which shows where the different nations came from following the flood. In verses 6 to 20, Moses traces the nations that developed from Ham, the second son of Noah. Uh, one of his sons was Canaan. And then in verse 15, Moses traces the different clans that descended from Canaan. Uh, they included Sidon, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgasites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. You know, everybody but the termites, it seems, is in that section. Uh, Moses then adds that these clans scattered and the borders of Canaan reached, and then he describes the specific borders for those different clans. Now, though the name sounds strange, the locations of those clans is fairly clear. Uh, he traces the, the uh, directions around, and it was really the land God ultimately promised to Abraham. Now, for that second part of the question, all the nations did come from Noah's three sons. In terms of how it came about, I think God provides the answer to that in the next chapter, Genesis 11. God judged humanity for building the Tower of Babel, confounded their languages, forcing the people to split up according to their distinct linguistic peculiarities. Here's how Moses ended the account of judgment in verse 9. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. All right, we got time for one more. We're going to squeeze in. This listener says, I want to say how much Laura, my wife, and I enjoy and appreciate the land and the book. It is by far our favorite program, and we can't wait until Saturday morning to hear it each week. We love listening online, though, so we can pause and discuss items but not miss a thing. I like that strategy, Charlie. Uh, the mm -hmm. listener says, on a recent program, you mentioned the 613 seeds in a pomegranate relate to the 613 commands or laws of the land of Israel. So the question is this, were the 613 commands given by God or added by man, as we have heard taught several times by pastors? Regardless of the answer, I'm so glad that by grace we've been saved through faith and we are not under the law. But what do you think about that question? Well, I, I answer it this way. The 613 commands, which were determined by Jewish sages, they're the ones who came up with the count, are all found in the Torah, uh, the first five books of Moses. Now, many aren't direct commands, as we would understand that word. Uh, instead, they might be considered implicit commands based on what the text is saying. And some of the commands are duplicates uh, in the sense that each occurrence is listed as a separate command, even if the same thing is stated multiple times. For example, here's some commands. Don't worship idols. That's Exodus 20. Don't bow down to idols. That's Exodus 20, the very next uh, part of that verse. Don't turn to the ways of idol worship. That's Leviticus 19. Oh, that would be three different commands, although they're actually saying the same thing. Now, for a listing of all 613, here's a suggestion. Do an online search. Here's the quote. James Madison University and then in quotation marks, the 613 commandments. They have a list of all the commandments there, and it's worth looking through and comparing the commandments to the biblical text. And like you, I'm glad we're saved by grace through faith and that we're no longer under the law except for the law of Christ. You know, if you have any questions about what it means to be saved, that means forgiven by God for your offenses, your sins, 
Why not talk to a friend, a volunteer who can talk with you, answer your questions, and help you know Jesus finally and forever? Pick up your phone and call 888-NEED-HIM. 888-NEED-HIM. Charlie's back next with his devotional, You Don't Want to Miss It Next, here on The Land and the Book. Imagination, it is in no short supply in the mind of Dr. Charlie Dyer, host here of The Land and the Book. I love the fact that his devotional is taking us to Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter. Many of us have taken part in a Seder around Passover time, but imagine being with Jesus at the Passover. I think you'll feel like you've been exactly just that with Jesus as you stick around for Charlie's devotional. First, though, this Holy Land experience. My name is Doug Sewell. My favorite part of the trip is impossible to answer is only one thing. It's kind of like asking me, gee, what's your favorite part of a Jag convertible? You know, it's the whole thing coming together, and it really is something that you have to come and experience to put the whole thing together, and when you do, it's just fantastic. My name is Sue Sewell. I'm from Austin, Texas, and this is my third trip to Jerusalem and to Israel. And I just would keep coming back. Every time there's something new and mesmerizing about it. This trip has been the uh, Judean wilderness. It is amazing to me that Christ could go there and resist Satan. It is just so powerful, and I love being here. All right, Charlie, I'm ready to go to Passover, not just with a a friend uh, who I know and love of a Jewish background, but with Jesus himself. Take me there. I'll sure try, John. Passover, the festival inaugurated by God to commemorate Israel's redemption from Egypt. On one of my very first trips to Israel, our student group visited a traditional upper room in the old city of Jerusalem. It was being used to illustrate what a first-century Passover Seder would have been like. The room had a low, U-shaped table with cushions all around the outer side on which we reclined. The room was lit by small olive oil lamps. Resting on the table, their flickering lights sending shadows dancing across the ceiling. As the meal progressed, the host took us through the different elements of a first-century Passover Seder. I've celebrated other Passover Seders before, but the one that night held special significance. When Moses gave Israel's elders instructions for preparing the first Passover, he told them, "'You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever.'" The focus was intended to be historical— looking back to remember what God had done in the past. But by the time of the New Testament, Passover had also started to look forward. For example, four cups of wine were served during Passover, but a fifth cup was added at the end, poured but not consumed. It's the cup of Elijah. But why add a cup for the prophet Elijah? Perhaps because the prophet Malachi announced that God would send Elijah before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah arrives before the Messiah, and a cup prepared for Elijah was a reminder of the coming of the Messiah. By the time of Jesus, Israel's past redemption during the Passover was viewed as a prophetic picture of the future redemption that would come through the Messiah. How do we know that? When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he announced to everyone around, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul told the church in Corinth that 
Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. The Passover celebration not only looked back to Israel's physical redemption from bondage in Egypt, it also looked ahead in some unique way to the spiritual redemption from bondage to sin, and a Passover lamb was necessary for both. In Mark 14, the writer slows down his normally rapid-fire presentation of Jesus' life and ministry to focus more intensely on the events of the upper room. Mark uses the word straightway or immediately over 40 times in his book to present the life of Jesus at an almost breakneck pace. But from chapter 11, verse 3, where Jesus tells his disciples borrowing the triumphal entry colt to let the owner know they will bring it back immediately, until chapter 14, verse 43, where Judas arrives immediately with the mob to arrest Jesus. Between those two events, the word drops completely from Mark's vocabulary. This is the longest stretch in Mark's entire gospel, almost a quarter of the book, where the word disappears. In essence, time slows down as Mark describes the events leading up to the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark takes us to the beginning of that fateful day. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, Jesus sent two of his disciples into the city and told them to watch for a man carrying a jar of water. They were to follow him home and then say to the owner, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Why not just tell the disciples the exact place beforehand? Perhaps to keep the spot secret from Judas, who was looking for a secluded place to set the ambush to capture Jesus. Jesus wanted to guarantee that he would be alone with his disciples without interruption. Though he was writing to a Roman audience, Mark still included several clear references to the Jewish Passover in his account of the upper room. For example, Jesus broke the bread during the meal rather than before the meal, which was the normal custom at a regular meal. Mark says it this way in verse 22, And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. In a modern Seder, two blessings are recited over the matzah before it's broken and eaten. Mark then says that when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. As Jesus did this, he said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. The third cup of wine at the Passover meal was usually offered at this time. It's the cup of redemption. And Jesus connects the cup with the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. A typical Passover Seder ended with the pouring of a fourth cup of wine, followed by a singing of several of the Hallel Psalms. Mark says that after drinking the third cup of wine, Jesus told his disciples, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup that night. It looked forward to the kingdom, and that's when Jesus said he would finally drink it. Then, Mark adds, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Likely, the hymn was Psalm 136, the great Hallel, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. The psalm focuses on God's loyal love for His people, and it's a great picture of Jesus' loyal love for us, a love that would soon lead Him to Gethsemane and then to Calvary. 
I remember how dark the upper room was during that Passover Seder we celebrated in Jerusalem. Even after our eyes adjusted to the flickering lamps, it was still hard to see. And in some ways, the physical dimness of the room must have mirrored the spiritual dimness of the disciples that Passover night. They didn't understand that Judas had departed to betray their master. They didn't understand the connection between the Passover lamb and Jesus. They focused so intently on the crown of gold they expected to soon see on Jesus' head that they didn't realize God's plan first required a crown of thorns. As the last strains of Psalm 136 echo off the stone walls of the upper room, what lessons can we take away from Mark's account of Jesus' final Passover? How about the greatest lesson of all? Passover is a reminder of Jesus' eternal love for us. He became our Passover sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. As Isaiah wrote in chapter 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. Have you reached that point in your life when you realize that your sin has separated you from God, but that God loves you so much he sent his only son to earth as the heavenly Passover lamb, who willingly died to pay the penalty for your sin. If you haven't placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior, wouldn't this be a great time to experience God's forgiveness through Jesus? Charlie, I can hear someone saying, I am at that point. How did you know? You couldn't have known. And they don't know what next step to take. Could you pray a prayer on their behalf that that somebody listening right now could join you in praying and say, "I, I want to receive Christ? Yeah, and it's not a magical formula. They only need to say something like this. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I just heard this and realized I've I've done wrong. I've disobeyed you. And the wages of sin is death. But you loved me so much, you sent your son, and when he died on the cross, he was dying to pay the penalty for my sin. I want to accept that right now. I want to accept Jesus as my sin bearer. I want to put my trust in what he did for me. Hmm to make me right with you, and to have me get to heaven. Lord, forgive me of my sin because of what your son did for me on the cross. And I ask you to do that in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, that's a great prayer and a great step for you if you've just prayed with Charlie. And if you have further questions about knowing Jesus, about being forgiven, about knowing for sure you're going to heaven, why not call toll-free this number I'm going to give you. It's 888-NEED-HIM. There's no cost, there's no obligation, there's no hype, no pressure. It's just a friendly conversation about the very thing Charlie's talking about here, knowing Christ. 888-NEED-HIM. That'll do it for today's broadcast. I want to say thanks to our co-producer, Dan Anderson, faithful as ever at the controls and in keeping Charlie and me on track. Thanks to our host, Charlie Dyer, to the management at this station for carving out airtime for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.